0: The first lesson is from the book of the prophet Zechariah, chapter 1, verses 1 through 17. In the eighth month, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, son of Iddo, saying, The Lord was very angry with your ancestors. Therefore say to them, Thus declares the Lord of hosts. Return to me, says the Lord of hosts, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. Do not be like your ancestors to whom the former prophets cried out. Thus says the Lord of hosts, return from your evil ways and from your evil deeds. But they did not hear or pay attention to me, declares the Lord. Your ancestors, where are they? And the prophets, do they live forever? But my words and my statutes, which I commanded my servants, the prophets, did they not overtake your ancestors? So they repented and said, As the Lord of hosts purposed to deal with us for our ways and deeds, so has he dealt with us. On the 24th day of the 11th month, which is the month of Shebat, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, son of Iddo, saying, I saw in the night, and behold, a man riding on a red horse. He was standing among the myrtle trees in the glen, and behind him were red, sorrel, and white horses. Then I said, What are these, my lord? The angel who talked with me said, I will show you what they are. So the man who was standing among the myrtle trees answered, these are they whom the Lord has sent to patrol the earth. And they answered the air, angel of the Lord who was standing among the myrtle trees and said, we have patrolled the earth and behold, all the earth remains at rest. Then the angel angel of the Lord said, O Lord of hosts, how long will you have no mercy on Jerusalem and the cities of Judah, against which you have been angry these 70 years? And the Lord answered gracious and comforting words to the angel who talked with me. So the angel who talked with me said to me, Cry out, thus says the Lord of hosts, I am exceedingly jealous for Jerusalem and for Zion. And I am exceedingly angry with the nations that are at ease. For while I was angry but a little, they furthered the disaster. Therefore, thus says the Lord, I have returned to Jerusalem with mercy. My house shall be built in it, declares the Lord of hosts. And the measuring line shall be stretched out over Jerusalem. Cry out again, thus says the Lord of hosts, my cities shall again overflow with prosperity and the Lord will again comfort Zion and again choose Jerusalem. The word of the Lord.
1: Please stand as you are able for the gospel reading.
2: The Lord be with you. And with us. The Holy Gospel according to St. Luke in the 22nd chapter, beginning at the 39th verse, and then continuing into the first chapter of Acts at the 6th verse. Glory be to thee, O Christ. And he came and went, as was his custom, to the mountain of Olives. And the disciples followed him. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he said these things, As they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, People of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. This is the gospel of Christ.
1: As we remain standing, let's bow our heads in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word through which you speak and reveal yourself to us. So I pray in light of that truth that I as preacher would just get out of the way, far, far less of me and far, far more of you, that your people gathered here would be edified, your son Jesus glorified, for we ask this in his name, Amen. Would you be seated, please? We're continuing today in our summer sermon series, Faith Out of Exile. For 11 weeks, spending time with three minor prophets who spoke at God's bidding into the life of a nation at a time of great transition. 70 years before the nation of Babylon had conquered Israel. Now, the Babylonians, knowing that a people who remained in their own land would be motivated to push back against foreign rule and win their freedom, exiled or relocated Israel's best and brightest to Babylon, where they would feel no personal attachment to the land. Since then, the Persian king Cyrus had defeated the Babylonians and allowed the Jews to return to their homeland. They came out of exile. And they set to work rebuilding their lives, rebuilding their nation, prompting an important and pressing question. What do we return to? And what do we let go of? And God sent prophets lean into that very question, that they might begin again in a way that would bring flourishing and peace and justice for all. Now, we're spending time with these prophets this summer because we are in a time of transition. For two years, we have been exiled from one another, exiled from embodied Christian community. We've come through a season of losses, of those near and dear to us. Loss of time with those we love, doing the things we love. Losses of hopes, of dreams, of opportunities. And as our question is the same, as we return, what do we lean into? And what do we let go of? Now, of course, their situation is vastly different from our own, so what business do we have applying this prophetic word To our situation. Well, the prophets aren't really telling them anything new. They're reminding them of what they've forgotten, addressing their fears, rightly reordering their priorities to undergird their flourishing in every aspect of life. Now, today, as Orvin said, we start a new book, hear a new prophetic voice. Uh, that of Zechariah. Now, Zechariah was a contemporary of Haggai. They spoke at the same time, and their messages were very similar. Place priority on the rebuilding of the temple. Lay first that spiritual foundation, which will rightly inform and order and shape the rebuilding of every other aspect of life. Now, while their message was similar, the medium was vastly different. Where Haggai used word and direction and instruction, Zechariah used picture, image, vision. Now God has and continues to use both word and image to speak to his people. As I reflect back on my own life as a follower of Jesus, God has spoken in words. Through the reading of Scripture, the hearing of a sermon, the reading of a chapter of a book at just the right time, the reminder of a verse memorized years before. But God also speaks in pictures and in images. As an example, when I was first a priest, I remember one day getting a cold call. The caller identified herself as a Muslim woman who was having a recurring dream. In the dream, she was navigating through a maze, passages and dead ends. And when she got to the center of the maze, there in front of her was a glorious golden treasure chest. In the dream, she said she would open up that treasure chest to reveal the face of Jesus. What does the dream mean, she asked. I had no idea. In my naivete, I suggested that we might meet and talk more about it. Wrong move, right? A Muslim woman meeting with a male Christian minister. Ugh, messed that up. She quickly got off the phone. Thankfully, this wasn't the first call. We had many such calls where we spoke about the person and work of Jesus. But the dream kept continuing... And I remember my last call. She was still curious as to its meaning. What does it mean, she asked me. I said, I I don't presume to have a gift of interpreting dreams, but it seems to me that you're being shown that Jesus is a treasure worth seeking. That was our last call. And I've often wondered where her story ended up how the vision that God gave her shaped her life. You see, images like that, the images of Zachariah, can be incredibly powerful. For they invite us to enter into them, to be shaped and changed by them, to have our perspective directed by them. But like a piece of art where two people can stand in front of that piece and have vastly different perspectives of what the art means from one another and from the intent of the artist... Such pictures need a lens of interpretation. So alongside Zachariah's visions, we'll find an oracle, an interpretation to guide us as we enter in, as we find our place in, to be shaped and to be changed by the image. Now, not only does Zechariah speak in a different way, he speaks to different ears. Where Haggai was speaking to the leader's With a nation listening in, Zachariah's pictures were for a nation, a people, a people in a very unique situation, but with a very recognizable response. Their situation? Well, they were a people returning from exile, marred by traumatic loss a people returning without the resources to rebuild or to work the land, and they were borrowing from the wealthy without the means to pay them back. There was economic fragility. There was internal conflict within the nation. Just as they had been exiled to Babylon, other nations were exiled to Palestine. There they had intermarried with the remaining Jews and had become the Samaritans. And now a returning nation claimed the land that they called home. There was tension, fear, suspicion. Yes, the Persian Empire had brought some semblance of peace to the land, but there were border skirmishes and threats of invasion. And Safety and security in the ancient world was rooted in the walls around your city and Jerusalem had no walls. It was only rubble. They were vulnerable, insecure. And when things are not quite in hand externally, when you don't feel safe and secure, when fear is ever present, there's the tendency to retreat inward, right? To try and bring some semblance of of order and safety and comfort to your immediate environment, as Orvin shared in his first sermon, they were concerned with their own homes, as long as me and mine are okay, right? But with such a retreat inward, it renders us unable to see, to hear, to respond to the needs around us. And by silence and disengagement, injustice begins to take hold in the land. I think we could relate, right? Right? I mean, maybe not to the specific details, but certainly the resulting landscape of fear and uncertainty. With all that is facing our world, an ongoing pandemic with an unpredictable trajectory, war, threat of escalation, climate change, food insecurity across Africa, economic turmoil, rising inflation, deep political division tension and anger all around us. And like the returning exiles, there's a very recognizable tendency in the midst of this fear and insecurity to turn inward, to try and gain comfort and security in our immediate environment as long as me and mine are okay. But when we turn inward, think only of ourselves or primarily of ourselves by our silence and disengagement. Injustice begins to take root around us. As I reflected on this reality this week, I, I wondered about our changing news cycle. At the beginning of the pandemic, the news focused on what the pandemic was exposing. The injustice and inequalities all around us. Black Lives Matter. The abysmal state of our long-term care homes. The ongoing trauma experienced by indigenous communities in light of the residential school system. And has anything substantive really changed in those realities? No. And yet, what is now high up on our news cycle a Rogers Internet outage, chaos at Pearson Airport, the rising cost of everyday goods is this not evidence that in the midst of fear and uncertainty we're turning inward? As long as me and mine are okay. As long as I have access to entertainment, undisrupted holiday plans, more discretionary income. What do we need? What do the returning exiles need to hear from God in such a place of fear and uncertainty that turns us inward? Well, Zachariah gives us a word of caution and a word of comfort. We're given a word of caution and a word of comfort. So first, a word of caution. The first six verses of Zechariah summarize the most recent period in Israel's history. Israel had been chosen by God to reflect God's goodness and justice and love to all the world. But their society had become to bear none of those realities. They looked no different from the nations around them. Sin, idolatry, injustice prevailed. And so God sent prophets to them. Pleading for repentance, inviting them to turn from the realities that provoke in our day the ire of the left, their oppression of the poor, their greed, their racial injustice. But he also sent prophets into their midst, inviting them to turn from the sins that in our day provoke the ire of the right, their sexual immorality, their dishonoring of marriage and family. But they did not repent. They stayed the course. And so God gave them over to what they so desired, to be just like the nations around them. They were swallowed up by the Babylonians and sent into exile. And Zechariah begins by reminding them of that history. To say, you're back in the land That your fear and insecurity is leading you to turn inward, to think only of yourselves. By silence and disengagement, injustice is taking hold. You're in danger of returning to old patterns. Remember what your ancestors did. Remember how they provoked the Lord's anger. Don't return to that. Repent. It's a word of caution. Now, the modern reader, the modern listener, often scoffs at such expressions of God's anger. Really? Do what I say or else I'm going to be ticked at you? Have we not left such fire and brimstone preaching behind? Jonathan Edwards, the great preacher of the 18th century, who many consider to be a fire and brimstone preacher, what with one of his most famous sermons entitled Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, called God's anger, God's strange work. And by that he meant that anger was not natural to God's character. What was most central to God's nature was love, mercy. But what does love do? How does love get expressed when in the presence of evil and injustice? What is harming the beloved? It burns with loving anger, right? God is not naturally angry. God is naturally loving and merciful, but in the presence of evil and injustice, love expresses itself as anger. Perhaps we could think of it this way. As a parent, there are times where I witness a budding pattern in one of my sons. Perhaps they're using their words to diminish others in order to make themselves feel better about themselves. And it stirs up in me anger, not in spite of love, but because of love. I can see how such a pattern will end up hurting them and others, impacting their relationships. And in love, there's this fierce desire to try and rid them of such a pattern, for I know it's harming them. My love of them stirs up anger. Now, if such an impulse exists in me, a sinful father, how much more so in a loving and holy God? It's a word of caution, yes. Don't return to the ways of your ancestors. Don't provoke the Lord's anger. But it's a word of caution born of love. And that is how Zechariah wants them to hear that word. For in verse 5, God asks a question. Your ancestors, where are they? In other words, will their evil and injustice last? No. The prophets, where are they? In other words, will the call to repentance last? No. What will last? God says, My commands, my words, my statutes will last. And God's words and commands are always in the context of His loving, covenantal relationship with His people. That is what will last. When God calls us to repent, When his anger is stirred up by sin and rebellion, it arises from love. In love, he longs to rid us, to rid you, to rid me, to rid our world of what is destroying us, what is marring his good image in us, what is marring his good purposes for our worlds. Will we hear this word of caution, his loving call to repent and return to his love, to his way? The word of caution is followed by a word of comfort, and it's captured in Zechariah's first image. It's a strange image as we heard it, wasn't it? You've got all of these different colored horses returning to a glen of myrtle trees with their reports after patrolling. What is this? What's going on, and, and how does it relate? But both the purpose and the setting would be readily apparent to those first listeners. You see, when a king wanted to check on the state of affairs of his kingdom, he would send out riders to patrol the borders of the kingdom and inquire as to the subjects. What's going on in the kingdom? And then they would return to the king's seat of power and authority to give their reports. And where do the riders return here? to a glen of myrtle trees. Again, it's easily recognizable. The Kidron Valley was full of myrtle trees. The Kidron Valley being the valley that sits between the city of Jerusalem and the Mount of Olives. And who is this king? Well, what are the borders that the riders patrol tell us about the size of this kingdom? Well, in fact, it is... The entire earth. The king is none other than the Lord God, the king of the universe. And and what is their report? All the earth is at rest. There is peace, prosperity, justice, flourishing. What a load of bull, right? I mean, there's unrest within and without There's war, rumors of war, economic fragility, death, disease, injustice taking hold. There is no rest, no peace, no justice, no flourishing. What kind of report is this? But the vision is not a reflection of what is. It is a promise of what will be. The Lord God has returned to the outskirts of the city of Jerusalem on the cusp of coming into the city as returning king. And what does a returning king need? A throne. A house. The very thing that Zechariah asks of the people coming out of this vision. Verse 16, Build my house. Build my temple. And Zechariah is pointing to one of the main reasons the temple should be rebuilt. Why the people are being invited to return to that vibrant life of faith. For the temple points to what will be. The temple, the meeting place of heaven and earth. The temple, a pointer to what will one day fill the earth. That God's will would be done on earth as in heaven that God's reign as king over all the earth will bring beauty and justice and peace and rest. What will draw the people from their fear? A fear that turns them inward, a fear that leads them to focus on their own comfort and security that by silence and disengagement allows injustice to begin to take root. Well, such a people need hope to have central to their lives an embodied promise that God is coming as king to make everything new. And the temple was that embodied promise that would shape their rebuilding, order their priorities out of exile. It's striking that this very location, the Glen of Myrtle Trees, takes center stage in the life of Jesus. The night before Jesus died, he passed through the Kidron Valley, that glen of myrtle trees, to pray on the slopes of the Mount of Olives. There he was betrayed, handed over to the Romans, crucified with his crimes nailed above him. King of the Jews, the king has returned on the cross, taking on the powers of sin and death and hell, and by his resurrection, ushering in a new creation, the first fruits of what will one day fill the entire earth. And then on the last day of his earthly life, again he passes through that glen of myrtle trees and ascends into the heavens. And angels appear to the onlooking crowd and and say, This Jesus will return in the same way he went up, meaning in the same very place, the Glen of Myrtle Trees. Jesus will return to make everything new. A few days later, that same crowd gathered wind, fire. The Spirit descended and inhabited that first community of followers of Jesus. They became a new temple. A new embodiment of a promise that King Jesus is coming to make everything new. And you and I, the church, are called to embody the hope of his coming kingdom. In May, I went to England to attend the Future Church Frontiers Conference. And it was essentially three site visits to uh, church communities around the city of London to learn and to listen. And one of the visits was to St. John Hackney. It's in the middle of a part of London that has been known for years to be a a place of poverty and crime, but is becoming more and more an artist's community. St. John Hackney is a a big barn of a place it could hold over a thousand worshippers' But it had fallen upon difficult times. The building was in utter disrepair. Crumbling, the roof had holes, it would leak. There was only a small high church community who called it home. In 2018, I believe, a new priest was called, Al Gordon. And their new minister honored their current worshiping life, but wanted to start a new worshiping community. So he had this idea to start an evening service. And a big ad campaign was uh, brought to bear, and everyone in the neighborhood was invited. And with great anticipation, the night arrived for their first service. And eight people showed up. And two of them were lost. (laughs) Depressed, Al went home to watch Netflix, to drown his sorrow in entertainment. And he was watching a documentary on British designer Ez Devlin, was a young British designer who designs the sets for the likes of U2, Adele, and most recently, the Super Bowl halftime show. And as he was watching this documentary, he had a, a, a thought, because he noticed that Ez Devlin's early inspiration for her work was a childhood encounter with a stained-glass window in a church. And he thought to himself, this outlandish, spirit-inspired thought, I I wonder if, as Devlin, would be interested in redesigning our space. So he got on his computer, and he found every single email that might get through to her, and he emailed every single one of them. And wonder of wonders, she responded to one of them. She came to his house, and she toured the space, and they began to dream, and it led to an absolutely incredible renovation of their worship space. And the only thing that she asked for in return was to be given the freedom to redesign one of their side chapels that was given over to intercessory prayer. Now, the chapel is absolutely stunning. When you go in, she's put two video displays, one on the floor, covering the entire floor, and one on the ceiling. And these video displays are mirror opposites of one another. On the floor is the most polluted place on our planet. On the ceiling, the cleanest. On the floor, the it most impoverished neighborhood in the world, on the ceiling, the wealthiest. On the floor, a picture of the worst education system in the world, on the ceiling, the most prestigious. Its artistic intent is to invite the church into the gap to find its place, praying, living, pointing, reconciling, such that the gap might be narrowed, filled, closed. That space, in many ways, has activated the imagination of St. John Hackney, as they have experienced incredible revival in that community, living out the resurrected life of Christian community in and for the borough of Hackney, for they're embodying the hope that Zachariah points to. That in light of the work of Jesus, in this power of the same Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead, the church is being animated not just to point to, but to embody the hope that God is coming to make everything new. And so in the midst of fear and uncertainty that swirls around us, that leads us to turn inward, may we hear that word of loving caution, return to me. May we hear that word of comfort. He is coming again to make everything new. And so let us, as a church, rest in the completed work of Jesus. Let us be animated by the Spirit to live into the hope of His coming kingdom. For our world desperately needs embodied hope. To Jesus' glory alone. Amen. Amen.